Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Good morning, everyone. This week is our second in our Lent series called The Grand Narrative. And we're asking the question, what is the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross? We saw last week how Jesus, when he wanted to give his disciples a way to interpret, a way to understand what he was about to do on Good Friday in going to the cross, he didn't give them a lecture, he didn't give them a book, he gave them a meal. And a very particular meal, it was the Passover meal. The meal, the ritual, the tradition that is at the very center of what it means uh, to be Jewish and part of what it meant to them to be part of the people of God. Jesus says, if you want to understand what I'm doing at the cross, you need to understand it within the story that we read in the book of Exodus, the Passover. And so we saw last week that the Exodus is, it's not only a story about ancient Israel, it's a story about all of humanity and how we were created with this good purpose to be fruitful and multiply and we traded away the vocation, the calling that God had placed on us by worshiping created things rather than the creator. And as we worshiped, this is the story that you see written all through scripture. As we worshiped the wrong things, we began to hand over the power to them. And eventually we become enslaved to them, unable not to sin. In the same way that the people of Israel traded away and gave their power over to Pharaoh, Scripture says, we all have traded away our, our, our place in the family of God over to these false idols and have been enslaved in sin. And so Jesus says, my coming on the cross, my giving myself for you on the cross was to set you free from this slavery, from this oppression to false gods so that you would once again be free to worship the true and living God, which is your very purpose. So all that we saw last week, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't, as it's foundational. It's foundational full stop, but it's really foundational for this series. And today we're going to be reading, carrying on in chapter 2 of Exodus, and discover what the story continues to help us understand about Good Friday and Jesus' death on the cross. Okay, so we're going to read, beginning in chapter 2, it's going to be a long passage. And I'm specifically reading long passages in this so that you can get a sense of the story. We're talking about the grand narrative, after all. So I want to give you a sense of the story. So we're going to read this and, and make a few comments for context as we go along. Okay, so let's begin reading in chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And I'll just pause here that if you, if you heard last week's message, we saw how chapter 1 begins with this very deliberate retelling 
this paralleling of the story of Genesis and creation and fall and redemption. We see that in chapter one. Well, we see the same thing happening here. Just like Genesis, it begins with goodness. It begins with a marriage. Levites, this is the priestly tribe. And so just like Adam and Eve were placed in the garden as mediators of God's presence in the creation, we've got Moses' parents as these priestly presences in the story. And the woman conceives, gives birth to a son, and actually says the exact same words God says as he looks at the creation. She looked at the boy and saw that he was tov. He was good. And so then we see, just like Genesis, the next thing happens, there's, there's, there's danger and the child is supposed to be drowned in the water, just like Pharaoh had decreed. And he is saved by being placed in an ark. The basket is the same word used for Noah's ark. And so the promised child is saved. And so you begin to see this is the grand narrative being retold once again in chapter 2. Okay, verse 4. His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman, young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. Some nice foreshadowing there of what Pharaoh will do later in the story. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh said, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And just to mention here, just like you had in chapter 1, where you have these defiant Hebrew midwives, you have this in chapter 2, this creative civil disobedience. It's really cool, where... where The mother technically obeys Pharaoh, and yet she subverts, paid by Pharaoh to mother the baby. So already in these first two chapters, you see these tremendous women of faith who are are the heroes, really, of these first two chapters, without which the rest of the story could not even happen. So it carries on. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The scholars tell us Moses was an Egyptian name, a typically royal Egyptian name, actually. Verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So here's this turning point. We, we read elsewhere in scripture that he was about 40 years old at this point, And there's this turning point. And at first, you don't quite know. He goes out to look at his people. Well, who are his people? Is he going to be an Egyptian ruler? Or is he going to be one of the Hebrews? And Hebrew, by the way, Hebrew was just a generic term. It was, it was not a specific ethnic or national term. It was just a term for the underclass, the servant class. And so Pharaoh's oppression on the people of Israel has completely removed their ethnic, cultural, religious sense of identity. They are just Hebrews. They're a nameless, faceless mob worth only for production to the people of Egypt. And this is who 
Moses chooses to identify with. Verse 12. So he sees them struggling. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. That's a deleted scene in the Prince of Egypt. That, that didn't make it in there. They make it look like an accident. <laughs> this makes it very deliberate. So, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. If you heard any of our Genesis series, the mention of a well should prick your ears up because there's a whole ton of wells in Genesis. This is a specific illusion that Moses is now beginning the same path as his ancestors. Verse 6. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. Oh, 16, sorry. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But the shepherds came and drove them away. And Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And so just just notice that even though Moses has left Egypt, he's chosen to identify with the Hebrews, he's still seen as an Egyptian until he sees himself now as a sojourner, just like this is an allusion back to his ancestor Abraham, who was a sojourner, an immigrant in the land. And so we see Moses discovering who he is here. 23, during those days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard, God saw the people of Israel And God knew. So this is the language of covenant. It's the language of intimacy. Chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. This is the first time that anyone has addressed him by name. And he said, here am I, here I am. Then he said, do not... Come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. 
Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Egypt, sorry, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is God's word. And that brings our long reading to an ending. So we're asking the question, what does this mean? tell us? How does this help us understand what happens at? I think in the broad level of chapter one told us, it painted the picture of what exactly we need saving from. I think chapter two begins to get into the question of who is going to do the saving. And the first thing that stood out to me, I'm not sure about you in reading that, that long passage. The first thing that stands out to me as I read this is Moses Search for identity. And I found myself, I don't know about you, I found myself personally relating to him through this. You know, I grew up between cultures, and so I could kind of feel the tension of some of what Moses may have been going through as he's kind of asking, who are my people? Where do I belong? What am I supposed to do with my life? And so these are kind of questions that I think no matter how you've grown up, what your life experience has been, these are questions that come up at different points in life, just naturally at transition points, at at big moments of crisis or change. Moses kind of got thrown into a a midlife crisis here. He's 40 years old. He's forced to leave and re-examine who exactly he is and where he belongs. And so there's this deep resonance, I think, with our culture because I think more than any other time in history, we live in this moment where everyone is deeply concerned with what is my identity? Who am I? We've got this whole term identity politics. It's a hot topic. More than ever, people want to find themselves, discover who they are, especially the younger generations. People want to know what am I supposed to do with my life? And so because there's this kind of deep resonance here, I think, with our culture, it's natural for us to read this story in a certain way. To me, when, when you think of it through that lens, this narrative reads a little bit like a super, you know, or, or what was Superman Begins called? Was it called that? What was it? Man of Steel. But it's the same, same thing, right? We're learning about where the hero comes from. All right, and it really makes a great plot if you think about it. So you've got these, you know, he's born into this violent, dramatic, you know, his family are in danger. He's snatched away from his parents. He's raised by this evil king who lies to him and, and doesn't tell him who he is, we assume. And so eventually he has this awakening and he finds out and, and he, he has to run from the truth and hide in obscurity for years and years. And he's, you know, he's, he's in a log cabin in the desert. And until, until he's needed to come back and save the people. You know, you could see Sylvester Stallone in this role. 
I think he's played this, him or, or Mel Gibson have played this role about 20 times each in their career. You know, they find them, they're, they're kind of like, they just got the, the vest on, they've just been chopping wood, and they're like, no, I'll, I'll never go back. <laughs> right? And it's kind, of how, it's kind of how Moses is a little bit portrayed in some of the movies. You know, it sounds like any number of action movies, any number of superhero movies, and, and it's kind of what we want the story of our lives to be. You know? So, Again, I ask, what exactly does this have to tell us about the meaning of the cross? Well, it, it, if, if you read it like that, it's kind of perfect for our culture. Because what it says is, you were born for greatness. But your true identity has been hidden from you. You've been brought up to believe a lie. But if you can wake up, if you can turn around, God will save you and he will do great things for you. He will do great things with you. You can be a world changer, right? Now, I don't dislike that story. I don't think it's not true. But here's what I want to suggest. If that is the full story of how we interpret the cross, then not only is our cross too small, I'm going to say it's too American, Right? It's a little too neatly packaged for exactly the kind of thing that we would want to hear. Isn't that a little suspicious? It is to me. Anyway, there's a few problems. Unsurprisingly, you knew it was coming. There's a few problems with that story if we look a little bit closer. All right? So I want to ask a few questions of that particular reading of this text. And the first question I want to ask is, who exactly is being saved in this story? Who exactly is being saved? Because at the start, it looks like it's a story about Moses being saved, right? Moses, the baby, he's snatched out of the water and, and he's, he's, he's saved. And, and then at the end of chapter two, which by the way, there's no mention of God whatsoever until the very end of the chapter. And when God comes into the picture, what God sees and what God is concerned about is the salvation of his whole people. God is not like, oh, poor baby Moses. I better save him so that he can live his best life now. Right? So he ends up in the palace. You know, that that would seem like a, a fairy tale. God's just not thinking about that. God seems to have different concerns. And so what this highlights for us is our first point is that the cross is about rescuing a people, not just a person. This is a little bit of a paradigm shift for the way that that we think within our culture because we live in a high, I say Western culture as a whole is very individualistic, but there's never been one that's been more individualistic than where we are right now at our time in history. And so this really... You see this affecting the ways we think and the emphases we put on things in the way that we interpret Scripture. It affects how we think of what it means to be saved. Because we conceive of Jesus primarily as saving individuals. We conceive of, well, 
it's hard for us to think of anything more personal, more intensely individual than the choice to follow Jesus, to become saved. And so we say things like, have you made Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? And we talk about my relationship with God, my relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that there's anything fundamentally wrong with those things. So please don't hear that, okay? What I'm saying is we cannot, we have to be aware of reducing the full picture to just that. So the emphasis on that has become so strong, I think for a lot of people, that it, I think it contributes to the fact of why increasingly American Christians feel less and less need, they see less and less purpose in the church, in identifying as something, as part of a larger group or body of believers. Well, I have my relationship with God. Why would I need anything else? Isn't the most important thing my relationship with my personal Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And if that's true, we struggle to find where does church fit into that? Church is just after me, you know, serving in Sunday school or something and after my tithe money. So, okay, we see what you're saying, but isn't a larger group just made up of individuals? So how can we get away? It starts with individuals, right? So how can we get away from focusing on individuals? And I want to, my reply to that is, numerically, that's true. All right? And none of that to say, I just repeat, that none of it is to say that in, you know, addressing individuals is wrong or unnecessary. I'm just pointing out that that is not the primary way that Scripture views what it means to be saved. A people is more than a collection of individuals. For a people to exist, it means that they have a shared story. They have a shared sense of identity that sets them apart, that makes them recognizable. And actually, it's only within that larger identity as part of a people that individuals are able to have a sense of meaning and identity and purpose. When you detach it from something larger than us, from a a people to which we belong, it's actually very hard to have a sense of who you are how you're supposed to live, and what your purpose is. Might it be that that has something to do with our culture's crisis of identity? Because we have lost a sense uh, of peoplehood that may previously have come from your, the, the, the people of your, your creed or your religious group or your ethnicity or your nationality. Those things matter less and less in the modern world. We're all kind of homogenized and we end up questioning, well, who are we and how are we supposed to live? So it's the larger identity that provides identity for the individuals within it, not the other way around. And that's why the Bible doesn't conceive of salvation in in these purely individualistic terms. Always on that bigger people. When you look closely at scripture, the emphasis is always on the collective. It's always on that bigger people. It's never just about one person and their story. It's always about an individual becoming part of this greater whole, this collective story. 
And once they are part of that, they begin to understand who they are and how they're supposed to live. And so what we're reading here is not so much a story about how Moses discovered his personal Lord and Savior. It's a story about Moses who had been detached from his people, rediscovering who he belongs to. He belongs to the covenant God. He belongs to the covenant God's people. And because of that, he then has a name. Because of that, he then has a purpose. Within that people, Moses could finally know who he was as an individual. So Moses didn't just need to find himself. He needed to find his people. I could make this the whole message, so I'll have to, I'll have to hold back. But it's really important. This is, this is why as families, it's really important to instill in our children a sense of who they belong to as a people. What this tells us, all right, so if we go back to the, the, the topic of what does this tell us about the cross? I think what this is telling us is that whenever someone comes to Jesus, whenever someone comes to faith in Christ, it's not only for the sake of that lone individual relationship with God. That person, every single time, every single time a person comes to Christ, they're entering into the covenant relationship that he has with his people. They necessarily, to come to Christ necessarily means entering into this covenant people. Because Jesus was redeeming this whole new branch of humanity. And this is how we know who we are in Christ, not only on individual terms, but because we know to whom we belong. To him, but also to this covenant people that he has made his own. And I want to suggest that this this is one of the reasons, you know, doing ministry over the years and as a pastor, you you meet a lot of people who say, well, you know, I used to be part of church, but now I I just kind of do my own thing. It's me and Jesus. I don't really need the church. And and I understand the complicated, a lot of times there's, there's deep hurt that's attached to that. So I understand that. What I've also observed is that for many of those people, they have a very hard time from that point onwards, really coming to grips with who they are, in Christ, what their purpose is in Christ. And it's because we were not designed, either in creation or salvation, we were not designed to do it alone. We're designed for community, and it's in the larger body of Christ that we discover who we are and what our purpose is. Okay, so I'm going to stop beating that horse, but I want you to get that. And so the summary is, salvation means nothing individually. It is part of a history. It's part of a history. Our salvation has meaning because it is part of this grand narrative. So that's the first thing I think that we are, that helps us, that this story helps us understand about the cross. And for me, it raises uh, a second question, right? So the first question was, I forget, but the second one, (laughs) sorry, I've got a little bit of brain fog. I got a cold. This is why I'm like an octave lower than usual. Uh, (laughs) Uh, who is being saved in this story was the first one. See, uh, the second one is who exactly is the hero of this story? Because if you think about it, you think of Moses, you assume great hero, really. 
Um, I mean, he's, he's totally naive. Um, he murders someone in, in, you know, premeditated murder. He runs away in fear. He ends up in total obscurity. He ends up really in a pretty pathetic state. And if you read on into chapter 5, he, he ends up being, I find him really annoying. Five times he, he, he pushes back against God and he keeps coming up with excuses and ways to get out. You know, I think, I think the perfect casting for this would be Woody Allen. It never gets casted like that. You know, the worst casting I've ever seen for Moses was Christian Bale in, in the Exodus movie. Don't even watch it. It's not even a good movie. But, you know, he's this hero character. We're actually in the story. He ends up this kind of weedy, pathetic, you know, frail guy by the time God calls him. And so I think, again, we're undoing that idea that this is a superhero origin story. What comes into few, what we begin to see here is the focus of this is not the purpose and destiny of this one individual and what they're going to do. It's about them fitting into the purpose and destiny that God has, again, for his whole people. And it's only within that larger purpose that he finds his purpose. Okay, so the next point here is that the cross is about restoring his purpose, not just your purpose. I love to say that the cross, you know, salvation in Jesus, it restores us to to our created purpose, and that's true. But it's not only true individually. It's true corporately for all of God's people. We all want to figure out our purpose. Everyone wants to figure out their purpose. We want to know. There's something innate in humanity that we just want to know. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? And so we have this deep longing to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And so we say, when people come to Christ, we say, God has a plan for your life. And he absolutely does. He absolutely does. But what I want to tell you is that you're really only going to discover what that is. You're only going to discover and find your purpose when you give yourself to God's greater purpose. Jesus said, if you give away your life, then you will find your life. Give yourself entirely to me. Dedicate yourself to me. Sometimes we hold ourselves back from from finding the very thing we want. People say, you know, I remember feeling like this. God, I just want to tell, I just want to know what to do. Tell me what to do. What's my purpose? And God says, commit yourself to me. Give me your yes. And I will show you your purpose. Until you're, while you're holding back that commitment, it's like you cannot discover the purpose. You have to give yourself to him. You have to give yourself to his greater purpose to discover your part within that. So what is the greater purpose? Well, at the beginning of this chapter, one of the things we, we mentioned is that this is a retelling of the Genesis story. This is, in a way, it's creation starting again with the story of Moses. And I think in the same way, any time a person comes to Christ, they become a new creation. It's one of the most beautiful sentences in all of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Those are words to just ingest and, and base your life on. And yet what I want to say is it's bigger than, we how, than how we sometimes see it. 
makes me think of the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm, I'm reading Narnia to my daughter, Nia, right now. It, makes, it gives me so much joy, and she likes it. And the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, this, it's been under ice and snow and frozen and dead. And when the news of Aslan, the lion, the king, when the news of Aslan arrives, all of a sudden they start seeing signs of spring. They start seeing patches of grass. They start seeing the flowers blooming. They start, seeing, hear, hear, they start to hear the birds chirping. And it's a picture, it's a beautiful picture, I think, of this verse, which actually in the original, it doesn't say anyone in Christ is a new creation. It simply says anyone in Christ is new creation. And so what I want to tell you is that we are not just new creations. We are part of the new creation. It's not just about the individual becoming a new creation. It's about that person becoming part of this recreation of the whole universe that is afoot, that this, this divine conspiracy, because Aslan is on the move. Jesus has come. So what Jesus was doing on the cross, he's not just making you a new person, although that is absolutely true. He was doing something far bigger. He was launching a new creation itself. It was a revolution. And so your new creation, what it is, it's a foretaste of that great springtime that is coming about. What's happening in you as a microcosm in Christ is a, it's, it's a foretaste of what God is doing in the whole creation. The winter of the world is gradually giving away to spring. And so it brings us to our final problem, which is, okay, I've told you that the hero is not Moses. So who is it? Well, it has to be God. The Exodus story has one hero, and it is God himself. It's God's actions, and the story begins here. And so what becomes clearer and clearer as the story goes on is that he's pointing his people forwards. He says, this is not going to be enough. The law is not going to be enough. The judges are not going to be enough. The kings are not going to be enough. He pointed them constantly forward to a coming exodus, a great exodus that would once and for all solve the deepest problem of the human heart. And so this is why Hebrews eleven twenty seven says that Moses was looking ahead by faith to a better savior. In fact, this blew my mind. Tim Keller pointed out in Luke 9, when you read about the transfiguration, when Jesus went up on the mountain, he was transfigured before the disciples. It says, Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And I'll give you one guess what the word departure is. Exodus. Jesus had an exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, it says. I, I've never heard that before. It blew my mind. And so Jesus is the hero of a greater exodus. And the moving part of this story for me, the most moving part is where it says God hears their cry. He remembers the covenant. He sees their suffering and he knows 
And he promises Moses that I am coming down to save my people. And yet it raises this final question for me, and it's our, it's our last point. So God, he hears, he remembers, he sees. He says, I'm coming down to save my people, to set them free. And then he says, so go Moses and do it. Isn't that funny? Like, God, didn't you just say you're more qualified than me? (laughs) Moses, that would be my question. It's like, well, God, you know, you're kind of more qualified than me. to go do this, why don't you just go do it yourself? I mean, he kind of does say that. What is going on here? Well, I think what we read in the story is that God very much is going to do it, but he's going to use Moses to bring it about. He's going to use Moses as a partner in this project of redemption. God is seeking partners in his project of creation. And so if we bring this back to the cross. Yes, the cross is about what Jesus did for you. It's about what Jesus did for us, but there's a bigger picture. It's not only about what he did for you. It's about what he's going to do through you for the creation, for the whole world. The cross, it's our last point, the cross is about making us partners, not just puppets. We are not merely passive recipients of what happened at the cross. That is true, but it was for a purpose. It it was so that we would become partners in his project. And so make no mistake, God will save a people. He will accomplish his purpose, but he is seeking partners in bringing that about. And so even though God is the hero of the Exodus and Jesus is the hero of the new and better Exodus, he continues to seek and invite partners in his mission. Jesus' great mission didn't end at the cross. He shared it with his disciples. And we call it the great co-mission. We're a missioning, co-laboring with him in his project of salvation. Not that we are saviors, not that we are out there doing what Jesus has already done on the cross. Rather, we are ambassadors who are out there proclaiming this good news. And through us, people can hear this message. People can appropriate the, 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 what Jesus won at the cross in their own lives and become part of this grand narrative themselves. He says, go out and tell people the good news that they are free in me, that there has been a great exodus, that they they need not stay in slavery to sin and addiction and their habits that are ruining them, that are destroying them, that are leading them on this path of destruction. They don't have to stay in slavery anymore. The, The gates of Egypt are flung open wide because I've defeated the powers. I've defeated Pharaoh and you can be free in me. And so a lot of times we think of the cross as just something that God's done for us, that Jesus has done for us, and and he has done it for you. That's absolutely true, but don't reduce it to that. 
He did it for you so that through you, he can do it for others. God didn't bring Moses out of Egypt. It's kind of like we stop at the, at the end, you know, of, of, of that beginning of chapter three. We, we kind of stop where, where Moses has left Egypt, right? He, he no longer has to fear Pharaoh. And now he settles down, has a family, and, you know, takes a job as a shepherd. And God says, no, I've called you for so much more. I've called you for so much more. Go back to Egypt and rescue my people with me. And so Jesus, in the same way Jesus didn't die on the cross, merely that you'd be forgiven and set free and restored to your purpose. That is true, but it's so much more. He did it so that you become a partner. Final question to you as we close here, and I'll invite the musicians back up. Um, This is my question, just like Moses. Will you look? Will you listen? Will you respond to that call, to that invitation? Are you going to settle for that pastoral life in Midian? Are you going to have eyes to see what God's doing? You can have the attentiveness of ear to hear when he calls your name and respond to his call in your life. He's called you to this adventure, this, this grand narrative, this purpose, and through you, as part of God's people, to play a part in the redemption of the world. Will you hear the cries of those around you still in bondage to sin and death and oppression by evil and injustice? Will you remember God's promise is also for them? Will you choose to see those still in Egypt and will you join God in going back to rescue them with him? Let's pray as we we close. Lord Jesus, we thank you that on the cross... You died for every single one of us, no matter how far away we are uh, or were from you. You died for each one of us, Lord. No one is left out. No one is too far. No one is irredeemable. Every single one of us is invited to join you at that table of fellowship where you cleanse us from all of the past, all of our sin, and you make us part of the family of God. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we're also not just called as single individual people, but we are called into a family. We are called into this amazing sweep of history of what you're doing in the world. And Lord God, I pray that we as a church, that we as, as, as a people, as individuals, as families, Lord, if we don't know you, that we would latch on to your offer, to your invitation, Lord. We, we would throw yourselves, throw ourselves at your feet and take that great gift of, of grace and salvation. Lord, and for those of us who have done that, we have been set free, Lord God, that we would not stay content in the, the safety and the, the, the comfort of Midian, but Lord, we would join you in your great purpose. We would have ears to hear when you call our name and the boldness, the faith to trust you and to join you as partners. Thank you, Lord Jesus. So we pray all this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit.
Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.